1: Ben Jarofsky show for this Tuesday, May thirtieth, starts now. On today's show, we hope you all had a safe and happy Memorial Day weekend. But now we're back to business. The business at hand today: we've got 43rd District Illinois State Senator Rachel Ventura. And as always, the Ben Jarofsky show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of chicago where to go what to do what to eat what to drink it's all there just go to chicagoreader.com and you want to find more from ben jarofsky he's there too just go to chicagoreader.com forward slash jarovsky that's J O R A V is in victory s-k-y
2: hello there, everybody ben jarofsky here we're calling this karen goes to hollywood tuesday and here's why all right One of those things today, I had to decide which news item I'm going to open with. I think it was a tough choice. On the one hand, there's a compelling tale coming out of Texas of the impeachment of Ken Paxton, the attorney general, which I'm utterly fascinated with and obsessed by. I could talk about for an hour if if you got me going. But I said, I'll hold off until Wednesday when Monroe comes on and we do the National deep Dive talking Trump and MAGA. But this, folks, is fascinating. Have the Republicans finally decided that MAGA has gone too far and they must make a move to recover their party? That's what I'm thinking about. Or is it just some pure little twisted tale about diabolical evil people down in Texas? I'll tell that tale another time, just to tease you. What's on my mind is the screenwriter strike. I've been talking about it for a while on the show, a very labor-oriented show. Uh, and fascinating story into the, uh, the Monday's New York Times, the entertainment section a Monday New York Times about screenwriters going on strike and the tactics they're employing, trying to get the big streaming service to pay attention to them. Uh, and there's many issues in the strike. We talked about them, the use of machines, robots, artificial intelligence, uh, just to eventually substitute for human beings. So they love that. You know what I mean? Oh, if I can get a robot to do it, I don't have to hire a guy. Pay health care. Pay any health More money for me. Uh, they. <laughs> Uh, anyway uh, so there's that's an issue and then there's just a whole issue of where uh, that particular industry is going and i realize that most people don't care i'm going to say this i mean I would, i'm i'm just going to say this. most people don't care really about the screenwriters industry you're going through your own life you got your own problems you got you got to make, make pay your bills buy your groceries pay your rent get your own health care life's tough enough for you why are you going to worry about something as foreign and alien to your existence as a screenwriter? And screenwriters kind of know this. And so they've taken a page from the teachers. And that's what this article really explained. And When I say the teachers, I'm talking about my beloved Chicago Teachers Union right here in the city of Chicago, uh, which, of course, uh, well, shout out to Karen. Karen in the title would be, of course, the late, great Karen Lewis. And it was Karen in the early uh part of, Oh, gosh, this has already been up 13 years ago, 210 to 11 to 12, who figured out, she didn't do it alone, there were a lot of people in the room, but she figured out that if the teachers were going to make strides against the powers that be in Chicago, which were all aligned with the mayor at the time, Mayor Rahm, so you're talking about corporate Chicago, civic Chicago, editorial Chicago, all the real powers that be in this city, the well-to-do people who tell people in Chicago what they should think and how they should act, and most of the time, people in Chicago just follow along. But if Karen figured out if she was going to break free from that combine, if you will, she had to sort of go around, go around and make her own alliances with other unions, with ordinary uh, Chicago citizens, with the parents of the children that the teachers taught. And her union successfully did that. They built networks that reached out into the community, and they're still reaping the benefits of those networks. I would argue that Brandon Johnson's election last month was an end result of building those networks of support. It goes back 12 years ago, Karen Lewis, Stacey Davis-Gates, all these people figured this out. And I'm watching this, reading this about the screenwriters, and they're starting to do it because they know. No one cares about them in the abstract, right? Nobody, nobody knows what it's like to be a screenwriter. Nobody realizes the sense of urgency that they feel as they watch their profession, their craft, that they spent years perfecting or working on, getting destroyed. They're going to be replaced with robots. So they're reaching out. They're reaching out to the Teamsters. The Teamsters, they're they're reaching. They're shutting down. They're going on to sets where completed scripts are being made into movies, and they pick it, and then they just that shuts down that production. That shuts that down. And the movie stars, like the big stars that we all know about, they're like, I can't cross this picket line. I can't, can't do it. Bottom of my saying that. So am I, I'm watching this, like the unionization struggles out in Los Angeles, Hollywood. <laughs> they always make fun of me because I go to California, Hollywood, Ben. Even out in Hollywood, all, in all, to a certain degree. To the great, the legendary Carol said, so, "All right, my distinguished guest, State Senator Rachel Ventura has been listening enough to me. She's got so much she wants to talk about." So I'm going to bring her on. Welcome back, uh, Rachel Venture. It's been way too long.
0: Thank you for having me on.
2: Before I take the deep dive into your background and bio and all that stuff and get people reacquainted with you, do you have any thoughts about this uh, screenwriter strike at all? Have you thought about that at all?
0: Yeah, I think that people need to support the unionization and and the Screenwriters Guild. I I know it's tough to get into it, but the idea is that your, your work is protected. You're getting a living wage in some cases, healthcare benefits, you know, writers don't write all year long the way that you think a regular job is. So there's ebbs and flows. And I think it's really important that they know that on one of those lower days that their salaries have been protected so that they can make a living all year long so that we can enjoy the art and the, the entertainment that we so often Uh, do when we are stressed out and and needing to devage ourselves that, you know, it's an important part of our lives. And I think that everyone deserves a living wage and we need to protect that. And and that means not watching certain shows or not watching certain channels, uh, then that's what it means.
2: Very good. Well put. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm going to reintroduce everybody to Rachel Ventura, and I'm going to try not to call her Robin Ventura, which I think I did <laughs> once on this show. Robin Ventura, of course, is the great Chicago White Sox third baseman. Uh, no relation whatsoever to Rachel uh, Ventura. Rachel, the last time you were on the show, I think this was the last time on the show, uh, you came on to talk about uh, that your run against Bill Foster, Congressman Bill Foster, uh, in the Democratic primary, and you were coming at uh, Foster from the left. You were very much uh, Bernie Sanders Democrat, uh, talking about economic justice issues uh, and the need for national health care and the need for the Democratic Party to move up. I had a lot of respect for the, the, the guts you took. I mean, that was a gutsy move to go up against an incumbent congressman. You did not prevail, but you did not walk away from that. And uh, I wasn't paying attention. I humbly apologize, Rachel. But in the uh, in, in between that, you ran successfully, challenged the incumbent Democratic state uh, senator. Uh, let's see, that would have been in June, I want to say, of last year, uh, and you were victorious, significant victory. And then you went on to win the general election and caught me off guard. I must confess, I'm always, I'm always surprised. The millennial lefties in the city make fun of me, uh, Rachel. I'm always, I'm always surprised when someone with my political ideology wins because living in Chicago. we're the mainstream dominates so much, I'm so used to losing. Before we get into the specifics of how, what you've discovered in Springfield's as a state senator and specific bills that you're pushing for, talk a little bit about the climb to win, to defeat a centrist uh, and get elected. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, so I want to first start off by saying that being an elected official helps when you're running for higher office because you get to see the inner workings, the sausage making. And so when you're talking with individuals and your voters, you start to understand really where the barricades are. And and it's a lot easier to say, you know what, we can fix that. Then the I don't want to because I think so many of us are hopeful. And then we get in office and realize, oh, my God, this is a spider web. This isn't one fix. This is like 20 fixes. So I think knowing that is always super helpful. And, and it brings a more realistic, uh, those promises, you know, that this is something that together we can fight for and we can push. You talked about how you're surprised that people continue to win against incumbents. But I think this is the age of it, whether it's Brandon Johnson winning in Chicago, me winning in Joliet. Uh, more recently, John Lash ran against an incumbent and won the Alderman-at-Large in Aurora. Those are your three largest cities in Illinois right now. And you've got um, progressives coming in there saying, you know what we need? We need our tax sellers working for the working people. We need to close the loopholes on the rich. Brandon Johnson and I both agree that we need to have um, a financial tax on essentially our Wall Street, the, the options board. Now there's going to be a lot of people who push back against that, a lot of rich people who own a lot of money and power, But this is the reality. If we've siphoned so much dollars out of our middle and working class, we are all hurting. I mean, it's worse than when FDR was in office. The divide, the the wealth divide is so great now. And you see it, right? You have people wasting money blowing rockets into the air and uh, wanting to give back. Now, How about you give back money to all the Amazon workers that you made your billions on if you want to give back so badly? So this is what is really happening is that families are starting to say, hey, we want a government that works for us, too. And There are dollars and we're going to elect people who believe that. And there are people out there who believe that it is an uphill climb, though. Taking an incumbent is no joke. In that race against Foster, we raised sixty five thousand dollars, which is not a lot of money, but we did get forty two percent of the vote. And that was knocking on doors, talking with people and explaining we can again have a government that we trust and trust that our tax dollars are going to benefit, especially the economy, but things like healthcare, education. This is what everybody uses. These are the best parts of our government. And we have seen over the years, the disinvestment in that. And we really need to turn that ship around. But that means everybody paying their fair share to make sure the burden doesn't just fall on the working and middle class.
2: All right, uh, Brian, a uh, lot to, uh, respond to there. Uh, I wasn't even thinking about this, but I might as well throw it out since you mentioned it, a financial tax. Uh, and uh, so many thinkers in the Chicago, somebody left the, uh, economists uh, have been trying to conceive of new ways to raise revenue other than a property tax, other than a fine, other than a fee. I'm sure it's the same thing in Joliet, where you come from, like you're struggling to figure out how to pay your bills, how to make your obligations. okay? and so you just don't want to slap the same old tax on the same old people who can at least afford to pay it. So the financial tax has been talked about for so long in this city. I just read a column by Rich Miller in the Sun-Times, who knows Springfield as well as anybody, says, forget it. Lefties, just forget the financial task. It'll never happen. (laughs) Rich sounds like me. It'll never happen. Just give up hope. okay? get real. Uh, so what do you say to folks like me or Rich Miller who say, you're never going to get it, so quit even advocating for it? it
0: well, I would say that's gaslighting, and that's what they want you to do is give up on it. But the reality is that it, you keep pushing for it. I mean, look at the, the, uh, the fight for 15th. That's like 20 years ago, and we really need $20, in the city probably $26, $25 an hour. So we've got to start that campaign now if we ever hope to get there. But ultimately, we need to index it to inflation. So what I would say is some of these bigger fights, when you're going after someone's power or someone's money, it's always going to take a lot of people to get that. And that means we all have to come together and sing that song. I mean, the fair tax, the progressive tax in this state that didn't pass really was – It was so heartbreaking because in order to change so that people who make more money are paying a higher percentage, we've got to get off the flat tax. Uh, Senator uh, Rob Martwick also introduced that this year again to just change as a revenue neutral to just move it from a flat tax into some type of range tax, much like our income taxes. Our federal income taxes are absolutely designed this way. All we want to do is have Illinois do the same thing. And it's so hard to happen. So whether it's the financial tax, you have to find a way where the rich are paying their fair share. Now, I'm also pushing to close loopholes. Um, I've, we've, I filed a cargo tax here in the area that meant the products coming in through our inland port, using our roadways, that those dollars would be set. It would be essentially a weight on those vehicles and those trucks would be set aside specific our roadways because before COVID, we had sixty-three percent of every product shipped in the United States went through Will County on fifty-five or eighty. And since COVID's happened, we've only had more internet sales, and we don't get the same dollar amount as a brick-and-mortar store. Would they take in the sales revenue right there locally? That local city is then using those tax dollars to repair their roads. That's not happening. The whole model has changed. Uh, this is something the federal government could really help us with uh, in making it more fair because we're buying products from all over, but not all those sales tax dollars are going to the places that are carrying the biggest burden when it comes from infrastructure. So ultimately, what do I say to the people who say, oh, give it up, it's never going to happen? I say, keep fighting, right? That's what it's going to take. Keep fighting. Believe in your dreams. Bring on other people who believe in those dreams, too, and create a coalition that's going to get it done. Because at the end of the day, squeezing the rich, I'm sorry, squeezing the working class and squeezing the, the poor like we've been doing. It's not working so great. We've got disinvestment in schools and roadways. I mean, just about every sector you look at is hurting. The worst is probably mental health and healthcare, and that's an area again. Our federal government really needs to pony up and get us a federal healthcare. But I am excited that Illinois did pass in this legislative system uh, our own marketplace. So Illinois will be competing in the market in the healthcare marketplace against insurance companies, and I think this is really exciting. It's not universal healthcare, it's not single payer, but it's a lot closer than we've ever gotten, and uh, you know gives some some. Better dollar uh, and cents when it comes to health care because actuaries will be setting those amounts as opposed to profitable companies looking for you know higher dividend checks um and then ultimately it's a place you can trust right we again we want to get back to trusting that our government our taxpayers are actually working for us, and I think that moves us in the right direction
2: all right God uh, let's move to a specific bill uh that you were championing. Uh, and it's sort of like Rachel Ventura learns the ways of, uh, Springfield and the state Senate, uh, and how the process works. Again, uh, Rachel's been in politics, uh, as an activist, a candidate, a strategist, uh, uh for a while, for, I want to say at least 15 years. Uh, and, uh, but you've been in, uh, the state house only for less than a year. So it's sort of your, it's your rookie season. Uh, and this is the the prob- probable cause bill, the cannabis probable cause, cause bill. I could talk about this for an hour. Let's do our best to be concise and <laughs> on the point. I'm talking to myself more than you. Why don't you explain exactly uh, what your bill is about, what it intends to do?
0: Yeah, so there was a court case we're looking to codify. The court case said that if an individual was pulled over and the police officer smelled marijuana, that the smell of burnt cannabis alone could not be used for probable cause. There were two cases in the third appellate court that both ruled in the same fashion. So we wanted to codify that, that basically said, if you smell like marijuana, if you close smell like cannabis, you can't just have your fourth amendment right uh, violated by unreasonable search and seizure. Unfortunately, there was a fourth appellate court ruling more recently that went against the rulings that we were trying to codify. So just a little bit about this case. My predecessor, John Connor, was the one who introduced this. Um, and the state's bar had brought him some of the language wanting to codify this to make it easier for all courts throughout Illinois to follow the same ruling. Um, the bill didn't go anywhere when he was in session and it was then brought to me by an individual on in Aurora who told me that, that cl- there was a handful of select police officers who were using this, uh, as soon as they walked up to the car, they would say, oh, we smoke cannabis, get out of the car. We're going to search your car. In some of those cases, then they were able to find other things that then led to arrest or problems. And in some of the cases, there was nothing found, but uh, as worse off as things like, cavity searches done. You know, I mean, this is not the idea of a legal substance should not be run, ending up in situations like this. Um, so I was happy to bring the the bill forward. We did expand it to include not just vehicle, but persons. And we did that because of these cavity searches going on. Um, I didn't think there would be too much to add to words, right? This all became sort of unravel. We had difficulties even getting assigned. We had to have subject hearings on this. Some of these individuals who had experiences came down and spoke in Springfield um, about their experiences and why this is important. And I'll tell you, I think the real sinker was when uh, a senator also testified, not knowing that this was going to be in front of them, and said that, you know, he was a Black man and he has never smoked marijuana. Uh, His car did not smell like marijuana, and he was pulled over. And he was asked to be removed, you know, get out of the car so his vehicle could be searched. And he's like, I'm not in today's day and age. I'm not arguing with the police. I'm getting out. So even when our own elected officials are are experiencing this, it's a problem. And again, this is a legal substance. So we we don't want people driving while high or intoxicated. That's absolutely uh Everybody wants people to be safe. But the difference is that this is a loophole that is being used to violate your Fourth Amendment right of unreasonable search and seizure. And we want to close that loophole up. We were finally able to get it through the Senate, get it passed, got it over to the House. And then a conversation about the Omnis package for cannabis began, which included a lot of things things like Delta 8, things like expanding the square footage so that you're licensing to sell cannabis. Uh, you could get more bang for your buck. These are all things that we know uh, need to be dealt with. And so there's a lot of conversations on the uh, the cannabis bill. Now, the second part of my bill also included removing the odorless packaging uh, when you buy it. One, we don't actually have any packaging that is 100% truly odorless. So we can't even comply with that to begin with. But second of all, this kind of creates that uh, division between burnt and raw with kind of opened up the door for the Fourth Amendment Pellett's ruling. And so we wanted to remove that. Um, That part did end up being included in the omnius. However, um, the courts, the Administrative Office of Eleanor Courts, had asked us to hold the other aspect, the probable cause aspect of it. And specifically because the Supreme Court has now picked up these three appellate rulings, they will be looking at making their own ruling on this case later this fall.
2: All right, let's break out some of the things you said so everybody can follow at home uh, because this is important stuff. First of all, orderless packaging. You lost me in on that one. I don't know that issue. Explain that issue.
0: So when they first passed whether it was medical uh, cannabis or later recreational cannabis, they put in their provision that you have to have it in a sealed container out of the reach of the driver. Obviously this is so that you do not smoke while driving. And a part of that was an odorless odorless packaging. Um, there have been some other cases like in California, or I'm sorry, in Colorado, for example, they were able to say that a dog or human could not distinguish between a legal amount or an illegal amount of odor, of cannabis odor. Meaning if you had a large sum of cannabis, let's say you were driving in over the border, for example, for a huge drug dealer, you could not tell the difference between the smell of that versus a small little packaging. Um, So the Colorado courts ruled that that was not um, something that a a nose of an an individual or a canine could determine. And so, again, it doesn't make sense to have this odorless packaging in there when you can't even distinguish how much it, the smell is indicating. Furthermore, we can't really make it. I mean, even if you put anything in a Ziploc baggie and you smell, you can still smell through the Ziploc baggie. Even when they have oils and stuff like that, they try hard to keep the scent in, you can still smell it. So, this product doesn't actually exist that we're trying to legally force people to enclose the cannabis in.
2: Yeah, I got you. So I suppose the logic behind having that provision in the law was to avoid a situation where a police officer might think somebody uh, has a reefer in the car uh, just because he smells it. So if you can't smell it, uh, then uh, you can't have that happen. Or uh, more to the point, I guess, uh, if you have it sealed, so you can't smell it, you don't even know it's there then uh it's you're hundred percent certain that you're not gonna be driving stone, which makes no sense because you're coming from a party uh where you just got high or you could walk walking down the street and you just got high. So it's like everything else uh in a bill. There are details. Right, that, or you no
0: Or your jacket could have been sitting in a room where somebody else was smoking. Right? And you put your jacket on and then you go get in your car and now you're getting accused of doing something that you don't even partake of. So, I mean, that's the issue with cannabis. The smell sticks around for way longer than the actual use. Now, I want to be very clear that this law, when it says can't be used for probable cause alone, Meaning, if a police officer sees you light up a blunt, you know, then that's different. If there's a cloud of smoke in the car, this is different. These are mitigating circumstances that all put together could then um, be a part of probable cause. So, you know, smell, if if you have droopy eyes, if you have a slurred speech, I mean, there's a number of things just like sobriety. So alcohol is no different. The smell of alcohol alone is not enough for probable cause. But it is enough for a sobriety test. And then based on that sobriety test may result in your vehicle being searched.
2: So in other words, uh, a police officer could pull you over and go, good God, Ben, you smell like a blunt. Uh, I'm going to give you a sobriety test. And then that would be legal under your bill. Am I correct in understanding that? That's correct. Okay. All right. So this folks... So, an omnibus bill uh, is a bill that has many different parts. So, Rachel, welcome to uh, Illinois. You have a perfectly uh, legitimate bill that meets a very important need. So they go, oh, uh, Rachel, we really love you, kid, but we're going to put this as part of this bill with all this other stuff on it that has nothing to do with. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Spring, Madigan, man. You, you, you never lived through Madigan. Mad Dog would do stuff like this all the time. We're gonna put this in this bill and that bill, or this, and then the whole thing wouldn't get voted on. Oh well, tough luck, kid. And that's how we never got any progressive legislation during Michael Madigan's regime. But you went with it. You said, "Okay, I understand. It's all cannabis related. I'll, I'll put up with the uh, omnibus bill." So, what has happened to that ominous bowl, <laughs> omnibus bill? Omnibus bill.
0: So nothing essentially. There was a lot of conversation on a number of the bills, including my get bill getting split apart, the burnt versus the raw being split apart. And so you know we were finally in agreement because there were other aspects of the bill that were good. We got everything into agreement until it got down to the Delta eight. And this was like the day before the Senate was due to be out of that out of Springfield. Um, and there were, we thought that we had an agreement to essentially ban Delta eight currently and regulate it in the future. However, some people didn't want that. They were on both ends. Some people just wanted it banned forever. Some people wanted it regulated now. And so that aspect of it failed the cannabis on this bill from moving forward at all. So the good news is the probable cause aspect will be ruled on this year in um, October by the Supreme Court. I'm very, very hopeful that it will move in the direction of the two third appellate court rulings, um, especially because the fourth had some other, um, some other things about it that were different than the third. However, that means in veto session, we have to come back down and try to fix some of these other cannabis aspects of it. And I will say that Delta A, in my opinion, it, it spins off. So what it is, for those who don't know, is that hemp is then processed, the THC from hemp is processed down into a product that you can get high on. Now, THC by itself, grown on a cannabis plant and smoked, you cannot die from. You could smoke until, you can smoke a ton and you will get physically sick and you will throw it up, but it does not cause an OD like the way we think opioids do, for an example. There have been two cases in Chicago recently where someone has partake of Delta-8 and has OD'd on them. So the question is, what is happening then? Is it happening when it's being synthesized? Are there fillers being added? Is it being mixed with fentanyl? There's a lot of questions there. Now, why is anyone going down the hemp route instead of just the cannabis route? Well, because the hemp licensing is significantly cheaper. And when we talk about the equitable um, prospects of this, of this you know plant medicine, essentially, the idea was that those who had been harmed by the war on drugs would have an ability to then sell it, develop it, and then make money on it. However, the licensing became very expensive. We've gone through a whole lottery process. There's issues with, uh, smaller warehousing or storefronts, then can't get the financial loans that they need. All of these became barricades for black and brown individuals selling this product. Whereas, you know, pharmaceutical industries are very primed for this. They have all the funding in the world. There's no barricades being put in front of them. However, to go a hemp licensing is $100. So you can grow hemp and then utilize that in a way to get your your doors open, essentially. So we we know that there's an issue. We know this comes down to money. However, we also want to make sure people are consuming a safe product. Because Delta-8 is not included in the cannabis bill, the initial one, or the medicinal one, it kind of is this outlier. And so that's why we need to either regulate it, ban it,
2: something, because right now there's no rules for it. All right. Uh, And I'm going to really expose my utter ignorance. I apologize uh, to absolutely everybody in the universe who listens to my show thinking that I know everything. I think I know what Delta-8 is, uh, but if I had to take a test on it in high school, uh, well, if I were on it, I'd probably flunk the test. But if I had to take a test about it, I'm not sure I would pass. Uh, So explain to people what Delta-8 is.
0: So it's essentially THC. It's THC that's been synthesized from the hemp plant as opposed to the cannabis plant. They're essentially the same type of plant, but one is grown for fiber and one is grown for the oils and the, you know, the aspect that becomes the THC. And so it it, it creates a different product, but then they take Delta Eight, they make it into flour, they make it into a number of other, it's very strong uh, because it's being mixed with something. And that something then is the big question mark.
2: Okay, so folks, follow me in this and you're going to learn something about Springfield and maybe even learn something about uh, cannabis, probably more about Springfield than cannabis. These are two separate issues. Rachel's talking about a probable cause, searching of cars and allowing police to say, you smell like you've been uh, smoking reefer uh, and you're driving a car. I am going to arrest you and search you. Uh, and hold you and detain you and charge you with a crime, okay? That's one thing. (laughs) The ins and the outs of Delta 8 is another thing. Somehow, in Springfield, they get joined. That's how the big game works. Uh, And so we're now waiting on a Supreme Court ruling to deal with the very important ongoing, has never ended, it's existed your entire lifetime, uh, Rachel Ventura of the unfair war on drugs that hits hardest at black people. Let's just call it for what it is. Yep. All right. A bank, this goes back even to the days when reefer was illegal. They, uh, Lollapalooza was this giant outdoor reefer festival that the city of Chicago promoted and looked the other way while thousands and thousands of people came to the lakefront, spoke some reefer, got high, listened to the music. Meanwhile, some black guy in the West Side is getting arrested for having a blunt. Yeah. That was our war on drugs, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and we, we're slowly pulling away from it. Haven't quite completely. Okay? We're still – you're dealing with it. I give you credit. Only a Bernie Sanders del- Democrat, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> would deal with something like this. But you are dealing with it, all right? And here you are, your bill, your very logical, common-sense bill is – Dumped in with the yeah, and I don't stuff. want to
0: throw the house under the the bus here, but I'm going to have to give him a little push at least. <laughs> and that is that the house could have run my bill by itself, in and of itself. And even if the courts didn't like the word probable cause and they wanted to rule on that, we could have even amended the bill to say police officers cannot search your vehicle for the smell of cannabis. Just made it a straight out law. We could have made that choice. The house could have made that choice, but the speaker did not want to call this bill on its own, and it got wrapped up in all the other cannabis fights. And there's a lot of them out there. Um, and you know, at the same time, they could have agreed to uh, ban the delta eight for now and and regulate it later, leaving that door you know open to do that and work on that in the veto session. Chose not to. So every other cannabis bill, including the one the couple caused one, gets held up. But like I said, they could have made the choice to pass this bill on its own. The governor would have signed a bill on its own uh, without any of the complications added to it.
2: All right, and I'll tell you why they probably held off. Why should they stick their neck out on this issue if the Supremes are going to do the dirty work for them? If the Supreme Court itself is going to essentially uh, rule to uh, enact the, the bill you wanted to pass, then why should the House do it? Let the Supreme Court do it. And then, you know, if you're, if the speaker's worried about some of his caucus members running in districts, where they'll use law and order against them, like they'll bring up the drug war against them, he'll go, "It's not our fault. We didn't pass Rachel's bill. Blame it on the Supremes. They were the one uh, that they're the one who did it with their ruling." Yeah, I'll tell That's you. I you go.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think you're right, and I'll tell you what's you know, what I learned in Springfield versus being anywhere else. You know, when I was on the county board, I voted no a lot of times. I'd The one no vote and 26, 25 other votes, right? But in Springfield, it's different, right? It's constantly, how do we move people to the middle? How do we get a compromise? If you got two opposing forces, how do you bring them together? What, and I get it, right? You don't want to unintentionally harm a whole group of Illinoisans based on another group in Illinois getting something. So I, I understand why it's very different than local government. But this is a case to your point you just made that the people it's pissing off is law enforcement, not all law enforcement, but definitely some law enforcement who are now saying, well, you've made my job harder. And I think that uh, for the officers who are experienced and do a job well, they know all of the mitigating factors. They see it. They walk up to the car. It's not just smell. It's a million other things that they've already you know, subconsciously or consciously are aware of, and they're doing their job perfectly. And I thank them, and I'm glad they're out there setting a good example. But then there are other individuals who continue the war on drug on our black and brown brothers at a higher rate and all of the statistics show it. And this is closing that loophole. Does the speaker want to be the one saying, yeah, we took your loophole away? Or does he want to blame it on the Supreme Court? (laughs) So I think you're not wrong in that. But the reality is down in Springfield, you are going to ruffle feathers if you want to get legislation passed that is meaningful, to the people that you represent. Now, yes, I represent some police officers, but I think they can fully do their job while still protecting the Fourth Amendment rights of every Illinois in this state. And I don't think there's anything that needs to be compromised on that. I think it's about respect and it's about treating people as equals. And that's what we need to happen here, including making sure that the police do not fall outside the law. I mean, that's the bottom line, is that we've got these struggles, these power struggles, and some people who have been very powerful in this country, in this state, need to recognize that it's been an abuse of power, not just them being responsible with their power. And we're getting to the point where we have enough representatives at different levels of state government who are going to pass laws to say enough is enough. Do the common sense thing that keeps people safe, but stop harassing people. Stop throwing people in jail because you don't like the color of their skin or the sexual orientation or what country they come from and start treating people as human beings.
2: All right. uh, Ladies and gentlemen, that is uh, vintage Rachel Ventura. I'm just going to say that. Uh, And I forgot, Rachel, I apologize that you were on the Will County Board. I forgot that uh, in my introduction. So, yes, uh, you were the lefty on the Will County Board. Wow. All right, let's move on from that issue and close it down with the discussion about your first budget. Uh, <laughs> and uh, again, this is her rookie season, uh, and a uh, budget was just passed. It was Friday, I want to say. I've lost track of time, Rachel. I think uh, it's
0: Saturday at twelve oh one, but yes,
2: <laughs> it's Saturday at twelve. Yeah, <laughs> That's classic. Let's just move the clock up. Pretend it's Friday, even though it's. They had itself. Remember that they had this deadline uh, that the uh, president. Uh, Uh, Harmon and uh, Speaker Welch came up with, and then they missed the deadline. And all people basically, the only coverage that we really got out of the mainstreams was they missed their self imposed deadline. (laughs) I didn't know what it meant. You know, I just love it. Talking point. Anyway, go ahead.
0: Learn from that. It's twofold. One about the deadlines is we couldn't come to agreement. Right, there were things that different. The House wanted the change, the Senate wanted, or the governor wanted, and so it didn't come to an agreement by the nineteenth. They knew they had more time uh, to work it out, and so we did. We worked it out, and that I mean that's the upside. That's the promising side. Um, the other thing I want to talk about before I get into the weeds on this all is. As a freshman senator, I would have all kinds of groups, individuals, lobbyists, you name it, come before me and say, I want these dollars in the budget. My voice in that room is about this thing. <laughs> because I'm not sitting in that room. I'm not in the appropriations board. So at the end of it, it was me sitting in different caucuses, and I, I do belong to the progressive caucus, uh, the women's caucus, uh, the downstate caucus, the democratic caucus. It was in those rooms where we could kind of be like, no, no, this is our priorities, and It's not the one voice, it's the collective voice, right? Those caucuses coming forward and saying, this is what's important that that amplify that voice. But the second thing I tell people when they came in and said they wanted something is that we have to start taxing the rich going back to the beginning of this. Uh, There's so many issues, healthcare being at the, the forefront of this, that the state, if we try to have a single payer state, we would bankrupt the state in one day. I, I mean, we just need real health care in this country. So our, so to get into the weeds a little bit, we were able to expand Medicaid. Um, so that was really important for people that have health care. We were able to get dollars into. Uh, early childhood, expand our gap of education. So the evidence-based funding, trying to make sure all of our schools are funded at 50% or more. We able to do that. We were able to get a little bit more money into our pensions, but I want to be very clear at, about this. We're $12 billion short on education. We are $16 short on pensions. So if we were to make the actuarial calculations of what we needed to, then we needed to put a lot more money in than what we did. Now, we are moving in the right direction, and I'm going to continue to push us in that direction. But at the end of the day, we have to start investing more dollars in there. We cannot do it by taxing the working class. We have to find a revenue stream that is going to allow us to close these gaps. And the only way that's going to happen is if the uber rich in our state pays their fair share. All right. Oh, you will get off that high horse. <laughs> yeah, that's a great,
2: no, that's an important riff. Uh, and absolutely. I could talk about the fair tax losing two years ago. That was in so many ways, uh, so symbolic a loss. And so I talk about it so much in terms of the Chicago vote. I've I'm, I'm not taken a look downstate vote, uh, Northern Illinois vote. Uh, you're in a downstate caucus and you're from Joliet. Is that yeah, technically so, downstate?
0: South of 80. I have, I have a district that, my district goes a little bit down to Braidwood area where Dresden um, uh, nuclear plant is at. And so that area south of 80, Elwood, Shanahan, it's more rural. It um, has a lot of commonalities with downstate when it comes to farming, the Farm Bureau. And so it's helpful to hear, uh, you know, what, what is happening so I can represent that, that side of my constituent base as well. But Um, yeah, so other budget things, I will say the big highlights are being able to put dollars in early education, meaning that if people want to send their kids to daycare, there are quality daycares and there's places for them to send their children. We expanded on uh, the assistance that the state provides for that, workforce training services and and job creation. You know, we really want to empower people um, to do the best they can do to get that bigger paycheck uh, and not be Uh, subject to the $15 minimum wage that we still have not even reached, even though we need to be far beyond that. Uh, We were able to expand DSP, so direct service providers. So these are individuals who are helping with disabled kids, autistic kids. Um, We were able to increase the in-home. So if someone is taking care of their child who is also disabled, we were able to increase those. So these are some of the poorest entities of our state who are doing the hardest jobs. And we could have done a lot better, again, filling that gap, but I'm proud that we were able to put the dollars into these areas to really um, show some appreciation for some of these hard jobs that they do. Uh, but again, I think that we need more infrastructure dollars. We need more education dollars. We need to make sure that we're expanding, not to necessarily just the mental health, but we need so many social workers and psychiatrists and uh, we were able to give money into nurses and get uh, a better path for educators, teachers to stay into the state. So we're moving in the right direction but there were so many needs. And one that I'll talk about that wasn't met this year um, that I'd like to keep pushing for, and that's a permanent child tax credit. We saw that when the federal government was able to put in that permanent child or put in that t- tax credit, that poverty was lifted. Hunger was lifted. People were able to meet the needs of their own family and make their own choices. This is what it looks like to siphon the dollars back from the rich and back into our communities. So I'm gonna keep pushing for that. Uh, it didn't happen this year, but I know that there's a number of other progressives who are looking to push for this, too, because it really does mean that we get to do from the ground up and not this trickle down crap from Reagan, um, but actually invest in our communities and, and let people make the best choices for their own families.
2: Yeah, trickle down does not work. Uh, all right, uh, I'm going to close with an existential question for you that just popped into my brain while, you, while listening to you talk. And uh, See, this is a total curveball, ladies and gentlemen. I didn't tell her I was going to ask her this. Uh, so you ran for Congress uh, against Bill Foster, uh, and as you pointed out, he beat you in the primary. Uh, and he went on back, he went back to Washington. He is now a member of the minority party uh, in Washington, in part, as I always like to point out, that because the Democrats in New York are so clueless about politics that they couldn't figure out uh, how to draw a map that would maximize the advantages they have. I've said this many before. Say what you will about Chris Welch. If Chris Welch was the Speaker of the House in New York, we'd have a Democratic majority uh, in uh, Washington because Chris Welch knows how to draw a map. That's All right. right. Uh, I mean, say what you will about him on reefer bills. The man knows how to draw a map, okay? Uh, and I appreciate that, uh, Speaker Welch. Uh, all right, uh, instead, you, you moved on with your career and you've been elected as a Democratic state senator, uh, and you serve in a house in which you are in the majority party. So upon reflection, are there advantages to being a state senator uh, in a, a majority house, or excuse me, in a majority senate, that uh, a democratic congressperson in a house run by and Ma- a congress run by maga does not have
0: Yeah, I will I will tell you we're going to get take a little bit of time to get to this answer. But I will tell you that the day I decided to not run for congress, it had to do with some maps. Some new maps were being cut and I, I was getting a lot of pressure from groups like Brand New Congress and another a, a number of other national groups. And we had been looking at this for a long time and I thought Gosh, the map that they cut was so far north, so far out, as far away from Will County as you could possibly get. And I thought, I can't do this to my children again. And during this time, I'd also been kind of reevaluating uh, my spirituality and what does it look like to what does fate and the universe have to do with my life? And, and kind of looking through all of this. Well, that morning when I got a version of the maps for Congress, I said, I, I'm not running again. Like I've made this decision. I, I've pawed around with it for months now. And I've decided I don't want to do this to my girls. I want to be here more for them as they finish their last years of high school. And so I called brand new Congress about 10 a.m. I told them that I would not be running. And they were obviously upset and tried to persuade me. I said, no, no. That afternoon, John Connor announced that he was not running for the Senate seat. So that door, talk about one door closing the next door opening. So I did. I ran for the Senate. I was really excited. My team was really excited. You know, I never thought that I would go to Springfield because of Madigan. You know, I wasn't looking to take on the mafia. And so then um, with him being gone and, and things just changing, the ethics of it all changing, it felt really right. Now, the party still spent a, a million dollars against me. They then appointed my um, opponent in the primary. So I still had to take an. Uh, but we won the 15 percentage points. So I feel like we were meant to be there. Uh, me, my team, the policies we believe in, my constituent base, you know, really having representation and having that voice. Now, to the point you made about, you know, MAGA around the House and Congress versus a Democratic Senate. Yeah, we can get stuff done. We can push our state to the place we need to be. I mean, I push environmental bills. I push uh, infrastructure bills. I pushed criminal justice bills and trying to deal with state bill and the rest of our uh, prison system, including DJJ. And I filed 44 bills and I had the support of a lot of my colleagues. So we have 20 members of the Progressive Caucus. That's half the Democrats. So we can really move things when we all come together and push hard on it. That is something that we so need in this state, in this country. I think JB's doing a good job working with both of the the House and the Senate. I think the progressives are doing a good job pushing both in the, the House and the Senate. I think we have a little bit more strength in the Senate. And the reality is when I try to talk to Bill Foster or Congresswoman Underwood about healthcare, because that's the number one thing our country needs right now is real healthcare. It would free up so much of people's finances and their worry and be able to get the healthcare that they need. They tell me now, well, we're a Republican run house. We couldn't even, if we wanted to. So it's one excuse after the other, I'm going to keep pushing Congress to do the right thing. Um, But the reality is that we can really help families in Illinois. And I'm, I'm blessed that I'm in the Senate right now. And I think that there were some divine forces there making sure I ended up in the right place.
2: Well, yeah, that's a great riff. I I'm with you. I've, uh, well, my, most of my career, I've concentrated on the local, uh, Rachel. Uh, and in Chicago, it's considered a promotion to leave the local and go to Congress. With most Many Chicago politicians, that's what they're angling for. Barack Obama, this is me talking about Rachel, couldn't wait until he got out of Chicago. That man was trying to get out of Chicago almost from the moment he lived. And he, <laughs> he succeeded. He did. Rob always leaving Chicago. So Chicago, it's considered a promotion to leave Chicago. Uh, And in reality, I believe if you want to make the most out of your opportunities for important progressive legislation, it's got to be local. I just that's my personal belief. Uh, And I guess you kind of agree with me.
0: Uh, Yeah. And, you know, I'll give you someone who you should have on this show is Christina Pazio Zayas, who was a progressive senator who just left the Senate to go work with Brandon Johnson as the deputy chief of staff, because I think you're exactly right. The instant change that we can do at the local level. Uh, I mean, it's so eye-opening and it's it's needed And to make those decisions and be able to get the council to agree with it right then and there and enact it. That's amazing. With the Springfield, you know, we've got the whole six months of legislation, they might have to go to veto session, might have to come back the next session, everyone's got to vote on it, there's all these, you know, and, and that's important because you need the balance, you need the checks and balances, absolutely. But at the local level, to really have instant relief, instant change of the direction that the city's going to go, you can really do it at the local level, and it, no different from state versus federal, we can do things much quicker, the federal government lays out the the blueprint, and that the money but it's the states who go after it, right? So mm-hmm. that all of those ARPA dollars and stuff, they were more fair in that. But generally, when they play out these grants, it's the states who really want to go after those dollars who get that money. And a lot of the progressives are not blind to that. And we are aggressively going after those dollars.
2: When you said there are 20 members of the Progressive Caucus, is that in the Senate alone? Yes. So there's a Progressive Caucus in the House that has many more members. Yeah. I'm just I'm going to blow your mind with something. You talked to Rob Markwick about this sometime. Back in a day, like 2011 or so, they were when they were forming the Progressive Caucus uh downstate I think in the House. They were afraid to call it the Progressive Caucus. They were so scared of Rob. <laughs> Rob Mayor Rob hated progressives. That was I mean, just think about this how insane the Democratic Party is. The Democratic Party was at war with its base, okay? MAGA like has taken over the Republican Party. They, they could do anything. And the Ted Cruz's of the world goes, sounds good to me. But Democrats are always at war with their base. Uh, and so it was like, should we call ourselves progressives? I don't know. Mayor Ron may get mad at us. I just, now you got 20 in the Senate alone. Man, times have changed.
0: Well, and if we don't – you're right. The Democratic Party is at war with itself on a regular basis. And if we don't align ourselves, we're going to continue to lose more than just the federal house, right? I mean, look at how many states have we've lost to Republicans. So the reality is that the – if the Democratic Party – and keep flirting with the uber rich and having these status quo policies, these neoliberal policies, we will continue to lose to the Republican Party because those policies have not resulted in what we need. What we really need is the economic investments, the engines, the innovation, all of that stuff really comes down to the the grassroots of it, right? With the progressive wing of things, what we're saying, give the people what they need so they can build up, where we need to go. Not, oh, well, let's, you know, give all the money to the, the rich in hopes that they provide jobs. Well, yeah, they're gonna provide jobs that exploit labor, they exploit healthcare, they exploit resources, so they can make more money. We need to start investing our dollars into people, not into profit. And until the democratic party comes together on one, on that aspect, we will continue to lose seats unless the progressives take over those states and those seats. And, and look, we're doing a big push. We're constantly teaching new candidates and, and saying, hey, where do you fall on these populist issues? Because that's what it really comes down to. You can call it whatever label you want, but we need to meet the will of the people. And that's really what is important.
2: And uh, I think close where we began, I think some screenwriters in Hollywood are starting to learn the same lesson. All right, uh, State Senator Rachel Ventura, it's a blast talking to you and definitely going to bring you back in less time than the last. I mean, I looked it up. I think it's almost over two years. No, no, one year. It's over one year since you've been on the show. So welcome back, Cotter, and I'll talk to you real soon. All right.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. Bye.
2: All right. That's a great Rachel I also want to thank producer Chris for doing an outstanding job. And as we like to say, producer Chris, give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace and love everybody.
1: And remember you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews and so much more all at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram at Benny J show and all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.